From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A longtime congressman is out, and polar opposites are running to replace him. In the 3rd Congressional District, which includes Pueblo and Grand Junction, it's Democrat Diane Mitch Bush against Republican Lauren Boebert. Boebert passed on an interview. Today, Mitch Bush, she envisions a greener economy that doesn't leave coal miners and oil and gas workers behind. They have skills as electricians, sheet metal workers. That's exactly what we need for 21st century manufacturing in this district. Plus, addressing the region's sky-high health insurance premiums, why she has backed away from Medicare for All, and Mitch Bush on stronger firearms laws from Congress. I would support at the federal level exactly what we have here. I proudly voted for universal background checks. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Another rattling twist in 2020. The president and first lady testing positive for COVID-19. NPR is covering the story. CPR will stay on top of any local angles. Meanwhile, we get closer to an election, which is our focus today. Specifically, a congressional race that's getting national attention. In Colorado's enormous third congressional district, a longtime incumbent's been kicked out, and so the seat is open, running to fill it Democrat Diane Mitch Bush of Steamboat Springs and Republican Lauren Boebert. Boebert, who beat out a sitting congressman, Scott Tipton, has a pro-Trump, pro-gun platform. She also has a standing invitation to be on our show, which she has so far declined. Right now, Diane Mitch Bush, the Democrat, in an interview recorded Thursday. Diane, thank you for being with us. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. You spent six years as a Route County Commissioner and five years as a state representative. Tell me about the first time you ran for office and walked up to a voter's door to persuade them. It was in Hayden, Colorado, which is a smaller town to the west of Steamboat Springs. It's where 20 Mile Mine, the underground coal mine is, and where the Hayden Power Plant, now the XL Hayden Power Plant, coal-fired plant is. I had my lists, of course. You always have your lists. So I walked up to the door, knocked on the door, and just started to talk. Uh, listen first. You know, hi, how are you? You know, I'm Diane. Tell me what you care about. What do you want the county to do? And it was great. I always love knocking on doors, and I really love listening to people. The 3rd Congressional District is huge, about 50,000 square miles. It covers most of the western slope and then swings into southern Colorado. And not surprisingly, there's a lot of variation. Ski resorts and tourist towns, farms and ranches, oil and gas, and two cities that straddle traditional energy and the green economy. Pueblo, Grand Junction's in that boat, too. This has historically been a Republican stronghold. During the blue wave of 2018, for instance, you lost by eight percentage points. Uh, Diane Mitch Bush, what's your path to victory? Let me first correct a fact there. This is Colorado's swing 
congressional district. Many Democrats have held this seat. Ray Kagosit, who was from Pueblo, uh, held it for years. Uh, John Salazar held the seat as a Democrat. So did Ben Knight, Horace Campbell. So if you look at it traditionally since World War II, it's gone Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican. So Scott Tipton did hold the seat for a very long time. He came in in the Tea Party wave of 2010. Tipton, the current Republican congressman who lost in the primary this year. What is your path to victory? I mean, I think that given the blue wave that we saw, especially on the House side in 2018, if that wasn't your year, why is this one? Well, last time I was running against a well-known incumbent. And as you know, the power of incumbency is great, both in terms of the ability to raise more money, in terms of already having name recognition, and in terms of being in the news virtually every day. Uh, This is very different. This is an open seat. And right now, I have had so much support from all over the district, all 29 counties. What's our path? Our path is to uh, reach out to people and explain my record and what I'll do in the U.S. House, and especially to the unaffiliated voter. 39% of the voters here are unaffiliated. That's the plurality. Republicans at 33, Democrats at a bit over 28. Mm -hmm. So the unaffiliated are key. But also the moderate Republicans. I've worked with Republicans for years as a county commissioner in a then Republican county. And then in the state house, as you may know, over 70% of my bills were co-prime, not just co-sponsored, but we worked together, a Republican and I, usually rural Republicans. Well, that is a picture of your district and a sense of your history. Let's jump into some of the major issues. And I'd like to start with climate change in a district that has had several enormous wildfires this season. A 2019 report by the Washington Post showed that Western Colorado in particular is warming faster than many other parts of the country. What can the U.S. House do specifically to help here? Several different things. I've worked on climate change issues ever since I was a county commissioner. And what we did in Route County, and I pushed it very hard, was to have a program to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. And we did that with energy service contracting. It saved the taxpayers $60,000 in our little county that first year. So I think as a member of the House, one of the things you need to do is incentivize retrofits, energy service contracting, renewables and rebuilding. And it's very important to remind people that tackling climate change actually creates jobs, good jobs, manufacturing jobs, construction jobs. And of course, as you may know, construction is a major industry in all 29 counties. And many people have been able, particularly back in the Great Recession, to expand their businesses and keep their jobs by doing retrofitting. And so those are all very important things. But as we've also seen recently in Pueblo, Everaz, the remaining uh, steel manufacturer, it's a Russian company, has agreed, thanks to lots of negotiations, to build a solar-powered new steel plant. So that, too, will create jobs. So we need to provide incentives. We need to provide loans and grants for communities at the federal level. And I'll work hard across the aisle for that. There are many Republicans who are for that, too. Uh, you mentioned energy service contracting. Do you, do you want to say what that is in just a few words for oh, the uninitiated? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
either your business or in this case, the county can contract with one of these energy service contractors. The first thing the company does is they come and do an energy audit of all your buildings. And then they come back, show you the results and say, okay, you can save this much money next year by doing these things. Things ranging from something as simple as improving the insulation uh, to installing new more energy efficient windows, new boilers, new HVAC systems are key. That was one of the things we did. And installing solar panels, it really saves money, both for businesses and for governments and for nonprofits. Now, you talked about incentivizing these types of steps in the face mm-hmm. of climate change. That sounds to me like money, putting money behind mm-hmm. them and potentially mm-hmm. federal funds. This is, of course, at a time when the federal government is seeing reduced tax revenues and is shelling out a lot for stimulus in the face of the pandemic. How do you pay for that kind of incentivizing? Several ways. First, this is a stimulus. It's a job creator and it saves businesses and governments money. It creates new jobs and it helps create new businesses. Second, right now and for years, the federal government, us, the taxpayers, have paid between 600 and $630 billion of our tax money each year in fossil fuel subsidies. We need to reduce, if not eliminate those, and we would have a lot of money left to invest in renewables, to invest in preparation for the next pandemic, to invest in education, in transportation, and broadband, and in water. And the reason I list those is because infrastructure investment, whether it's energy service contracting investment or anything else, creates jobs and it creates them right away. So then what happens? You get multiplier effects throughout the community. Is this a Green New Deal? Uh, I know that's a fraught term for some. Do you support a Green New Deal? I do not support the Green New Deal. It's a It came in in February 2019. It's a 15-page resolution. It does nothing. And it shows remarkable insensitivity to the kinds of issues we face in rural Colorado. What I would hark back to is what used to be called the Blue-Green Alliance. And back then, the people were in it was labor and conservation, okay? Uh, recognizing that good new construction and infrastructure jobs could come out of renewables. That was sometimes referred to back then as a Green New Deal. My opponent, of course, has attacked me as being for the AOC Green New Deal. I am not for that. It's a resolution. It's not a bill. AOC. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. The 3rd Congressional District is heavily reliant on the production of oil and gas and coal How does this play out in a community like Craig, for instance, which has been so reliant on coal? Do you see that the jobs in a new energy economy could be anywhere near the kinds of jobs that have come from the fossil fuel economy? The short answer to the question is yes. What people in the state of Colorado, and particularly in Craig, I attended a series of meetings right before COVID, uh, we're working on a just transition. We realize that it's international markets that are changing these jobs. Coal companies from Northwest Colorado used to export coal to China. We have high, high quality coal here. And now, of course, China is either investing in renewables or it is importing much cheaper coal from Australia. So that leaves coal companies a bit high and dry. The plant that's closing in Craig, 
in several years, is part of the tri-state system. It has had long in its uh, plans to close first one, uh, then much later two, then much later three. Why? Because customers in rural co-ops, just as customers in IOUs, investor-owned utilities, are demanding more renewables, and those companies are finding that they're cheaper. So your question, what kinds of jobs? Coal miners, who I know a lot of coal miners, and they support me, some of them, have enormous skills. Uh, And so do oil and gas workers. They have skills as electricians. They have skills as sheet metal workers. That's exactly what we need for 21st century manufacturing in this district. One of my proposals is to deal with the problems in our COVID medical supply chain. We can manufacture those medical supplies here. And those workers have amazing skills that are able to be translated. What the Just Transition program and discussion is in Colorado is to figure out ways to introduce more high paying jobs, not less, that use the skills of people here so they don't have to move away. Let's talk about health care. The Western Slope has the highest health insurance premiums in the state and among the highest in the country. And that's partly because very few insurance companies sell in the area. And there's also, in some cases, a lack of health care providers. The issues page of your website says you would, quoting here, reduce the cost of premiums, deductibles and drugs. Certainly a valiant goal. But how do you achieve that? Sure. And just so you know, I worked on this issue with Republican colleagues in the Colorado House, and it was very hard to get anywhere with the insurance companies. But at the federal level, my top priority is to protect and extend the Affordable Care Act. As you know, the Affordable Care Act protects coverage for pre-existing conditions. It tries to have parity between mental and physical health, which is so important, especially out here. And it allows young people to stay on their parents' policy until they're 26. We certainly don't want to dump them off right now, especially with the economic recession. And very importantly in Colorado, the ACA provides for the expansion of Medicaid. We took advantage of that. Some states didn't. So what we have in our district are a very high proportion of people who are eligible for and utilize Medicaid. So that's critical. Uh, Now, let me just say that obviously Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is in jeopardy. There is a case before the U.S. Supreme Court that would challenge it pretty fundamentally. Uh, So talk about that landscape here, because its future is uncertain. November 10th, the Supreme Court will hear the Trump administration's case for overturning the Affordable Care Act. I hope they don't do that. But if they do, we are prepared. I am prepared. My colleagues are prepared, if I'm elected, to take up a new version, a stronger version of the Affordable Care Act in the House. But not Medicare for all. You you don't support that approach, correct? No, I don't. And one of the reasons I don't at this time is because we're in an emergency. We need triage. We need it now. Let me talk a few about a few other things I do support. We have to allow Medicare to negotiate for prescription drugs. Prescription drugs are just killing people over here. 
literally and figuratively, but I meant financially. And so if, if we could negotiate drug prices, as the VA has been able to do for years, their drug prices are a fraction of what Medicare's are. So that's one step. We could also cap the rate of increase. We've seen increases in drugs like insulin and uh, various heart drugs, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand percent? Really? Uh, and then we also need to protect CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. That uh, really works for families uh, who make too much for Medicaid but can't afford their insurance premiums. One couple told me that without it, their son might have died. Uh, and then another piece, of course, that's critical, and you alluded to it, is support for our rural health clinics and our rural hospitals. Do help me understand your position on Medicare for All, because in, in 2018, you did support it when you ran against Congressman Scott Tipton. That was a different bill, a very different bill. It did not do away with private insurance, which is essentially what they do in Canada and Australia as well. I do not want to take away choices from people. I know many people who like their employer's health insurance. There are other people who are now unemployed because of COVID who have no other choice but the exchange or Medicaid. And so that's why I think the current Medicare for all bill is not helpful. It would eliminate private insurance. You stand by the Affordable Care Act, and yet you're in a district that has some of the highest health care costs in the country, health insurance in particular. Mm-hmm. If Obamacare is working, why is your district in that position? Because insurance companies are monopolies. Uh, when you have monopolies, you don't have competitive pricing. The Affordable Care Act was organized around insurance companies. So we need to focus very much on competition and more competition and incentivizing more competition in insurance and also, by the way, in the pharmaceutical industry as well. Your opponent, Republican Lauren Boebert, is a gun rights activist. The staff at her restaurant in Rifle, Colorado, openly carry guns at work. You're endorsed by major organizations that call for stronger gun laws. What if any additional gun laws would you support? I would support at the federal level exactly what we have here. In 2013, I proudly voted for universal background checks. Since 2013, in Colorado, over 350 violent, convicted felons have been stopped from easily waltzing into a federally licensed firearms dealer and buying a gun because of their convictions. We need that at the federal level. And I support the Second Amendment strongly. And I support responsible gun ownership. My first husband was a police officer and his service weapon was a Smith & Wesson 357. And I knew how to shoot it. I was an okay shot, not great. But I respect guns and gun owners. I don't respect violent criminals. We We need to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous criminals. What gun legislation would go too far for you then? You say that you respect gun rights and gun owners. Where do you think their rights are are inviolate and where the law shouldn't go then? I don't think that any government should be, quote, taking their guns if the they are law-abiding folks who are responsible gun owners. There are two other issues that are important here. One is suicide, one is domestic violence. 
And my husband, who was a police officer, uh, found that the domestic violence calls were the most dangerous of all. And I was the president of the board of a safe house for battered women, working closely with sheriffs and police officers in the 80s. And we need to deal more with domestic violence. Of course, we need to deal with being able to enforce restraining orders. When someone has a restraining order against someone, that person should not be able to go out and easily purchase a gun. That's part of universal background checks. It's restraining orders, as well as convictions. More than half of Colorado counties, including several in the 3rd Congressional District, have passed resolutions to make themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries. The wording on these varies, but the idea is that they affirm support of the Second Amendment. Does that indicate that you might be out of touch with significant portions of your district on guns? No. Again, let's be clear here. Contrary to what Boebert says, and she said that and the media has repeated it again and again, that I want to take people's guns, no. I want universal background checks. And, you know, there are so many more issues that constituents bring up. The economy. We haven't really talked about how I will help create good jobs. And we haven't talked at all about protecting our public lands, our environment, and our water. Those are key issues that people bring up again and again, both Republicans and Democrats. Those are bipartisan, in some cases nonpartisan issues that people throughout the district care about. We focused a good deal on jobs so far related to the green economy. I'll I'll say that with with limited time, I would like to ask you about public lands. The Bureau of Land Management moved its headquarters into the 3rd Congressional District in Grand Junction. Was that a good move? And do you think that it will have an effect on the preservation of public lands? I don't think it will have an effect on the preservation of public lands. We already have BLM managers all over these counties. I've worked with BLM resource advisory councils, RACs, for years in stakeholder groups. The BLM has always had great local managers. Are you glad the headquarters moved to Grand Junction? Yes, they moved to Grand Junction. Frankly, are you glad? Are you glad of it? Is what I'm asking. No, I'm not glad of it because what it's done is essentially meant that wildlife biologists, scientists who would normally be testifying in House committees can't. And they also, by the way, got rid of some of those science-based positions. We've got to bring the BLM back to what it used to be, a real land management organization where the opinions of scientists, whether they're wildlife biologists, plant biologists, geologists, are listened to. Moreover, this administration and my opponent, uh, she hasn't really talked, uh, she hasn't said the word public lands, but she said drill, baby, drill. And our public lands are by definition, both Forest Service and BLM, multiple use lands that people enjoy, that we need to protect. And it's not just for people's heart and soul, although it's a big deal now during COVID, people use them, but it's also critical for our economy. So many sectors of our economy in the third CD rely on open, whole public lands. Let's take ranching. Grazing on public lands is critical for ranchers. Uh, If you sell off those lands, they won't be able to do that anymore. Our water comes from public lands. Uh, Then we have, of course, our outdoor recreation economy, which relies on public lands. Hunters, outfitters, outdoor manufacturers, and that's a key kind of job. There are more outdoor jobs in the third CD, and by the way, in Colorado, 
than other kinds of jobs. And they're growing, particularly during COVID. We've seen an upsurge in people who want to buy outdoor goods and who want to recreate. So that economy is critical and it relies on public lands. But so do so many other parts of our economies, real estate, construction, and simply bringing new entrepreneurs and businesses here. Diane Mitch Bush, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure. She is a Democrat in Steamboat Springs, a retired sociology professor, a former county commissioner, and former state representative. We spoke Thursday. Her Republican opponent in the third CD race, Lauren Boebert, has declined our invitation for an interview, but it remains open. In the meantime, we'll hear more about Boebert's policies and her campaign next week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, you've probably noticed there's an election coming up. In Colorado, that means a big Senate race, House contests, and nearly a dozen ballot measures. To help you keep on top of it all, CPR's public affairs team is back with a new season of our state politics podcast, Purplish. I'm Andy Kenny. Each week, Benta Berkland, Caitlin Kim, and I will dive into the big races and the big issues, talk about what we're hearing from candidates and voters, and share the moments that make us go, wait, what? Join us. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He's been called the Jackie Robinson of classical music. During segregation, Charlie Burrell was the first African-American to sign with a U.S. symphony orchestra. That was in 1949 with the Denver Symphony, what we know today as the Colorado Symphony. Burrell paved the way for other black musicians. I'll never forget I was 12 years old and I was playing with the set called the um, Crystal Radio. And I heard something, and it happened to be the San Francisco Symphony playing Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony and conducted by Pierre Montour. And at that moment, I fell in love with it. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to play with that, that band. I didn't know it was an orchestra, that band. The very sound of the bass just touching it was my thrill. They used to look at me and laugh and say, what are you doing playing the white man's music? You'll never be accepted, so why even bother? I used to talk to my mother about that, and she said, don't let that bother you. Do whatever you want to do, but do it with class and dignity. Well, on Sunday, Burrell turns 100. Earlier this year, he sat down with CPR classical host Ray White to reflect on his century-long love affair with music. Burrell remembered the first bass he ever played in junior high in Detroit. He took up the instrument partly as a way to cut class. Little did he know that 28 years later, he'd joined the prominent San Francisco Symphony. Oh, yeah, it took me a really, real long while, but you know, I never got uh, impatient, you know. And I stuck away to my guns because every morning, it was my, in, my, my thing to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and start practicing until 8 every morning. When I look back now, I never had a vacation until I'd been playing for 20 years. I I had my first vacation from music, and after two hours, I almost went crazy. I had to look for, where's the bass? Where's the bass, you know? I said, well, okay, here it is. And I went back to it, and I haven't, and from then on, I didn't slow down at all. I still practiced anywhere from four to five to six hours a day. Even when I got with the Denver Symphony, I was practicing four hours. And I don't know, when I got to San Francisco Symphony, I was practicing eight hours a day. 
And that, that was all I did was practice. You know, they, they couldn't get a hold of me. And I had no time for anything else, hardly, but, but practicing. But it, it paid off a little bit. Burrell's love of music isn't limited to classical. He's equally adept in the world of jazz, which puts him in a rare class of musicians. He was in the house band for the Rossonian Hotel in Denver's Five Points and played in Colorado's first integrated jazz trio. He has shared the stage with greats like Charlie Parker, Ella Fitzgerald, and Billie Holiday. Here's Burrell on a recording from back in the day at the Lakeside Amusement Park Jazz Club. Sutton Trio there featuring bassist Charlie Burrell of Denver. On Sunday, Burrell turns 100. Happy birthday, Charlie. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.